Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, December 15th, 2023, the 1059th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. Okay. So. Friday, December 15th, this might be, I'm not saying it definitely will be, but this might be the last podcast episode until 2024. 
And no, I'm not going to do one of those year in review shows and I'm not going to do a countdown. Ooh, what did he put at number one? Is it Taylor Swift? I'm just going to have a normal show and we're going to talk about the info war and I'm going to highlight a few odd things that happened this week that viewed through the lens of an info war and considered with at least some understanding of the potential of something like devolution or some other form of continuity of government may be in play. And hopefully that's a positive way to end a long 2023. We are now three years into this illegitimate administration. We got three years under our belts. For a while there, it seemed like the whole thing was falling apart and we were just going to tumble into the abyss with no hope of recovery. But here we are still standing and concluding a very productive year. I believe everyone can take some solace and some comfort in how well we've endured all this. People have really learned how to just keep pushing forward. And I believe that in a year from now, we are going to be in the final stages of emerging from this morass. So let's get into it and have a little fun. Now, you might remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the CTIL files released by Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi and Alex Gutentag. These are at least Schellenberger and Taibbi, two of the reporters who compiled and publicized the information operation known as the Twitter files. And in their reporting of the Twitter files, they took the long understood facts about government censorship and the coordination with the big tech social media platforms to censor American citizens and their political speech when it came to issues like COVID and election fraud and vaccines and the very violent insurrection. Now, many people who were censored or banned from big tech social media platforms had already been paying attention to this issue. But if you weren't talking about politics or weren't able to find your way to anything true that might threaten the central narrative, if you got involved to the extent of repeating the slogans or if you ignored politics altogether, then you weren't censored. You stayed on the platforms and you might have occasionally expressed opinions about how bad it was that your fellow citizens were being censored, but you pretended it wasn't bad because they were all the dangerous people spreading the misinformation. And we all know the rest is history. But if you were censored, then you have an understanding of what it felt like to be censored. And you also didn't need the Twitter files or now the CTIL files to understand that the government was involved in it. Certainly, I didn't need that. In the spring of 2021, Judicial Watch released FOIAed emails from the California Secretary of State's office going to Joe Biden's presidential campaign's PR group and the big tech social media platforms requesting censorship of California citizens and posts by California citizens, one of which was me. My face appearing in those FOIA documents because someone connected to the California Secretary of State's office saw a video of me talking about how California had changed my voter registration to permanent mail-in ballot only. Now, that was just a fact. I didn't change it to that status. The Secretary of State's office did that, but they didn't want anybody to know they were doing that because that sounds, you know, kind of wrong. 
California, with their millions of inactive and extra voter registrations, switched everyone to permanent mail-in voting so that they could say, look, everybody wanted the mail-in ballots. We didn't change it to this so that we could steal more elections. We did it because everybody wanted it. They could report that to the whole country. Look, everyone is on the permanent mail-in vote list. The California Secretary of State's office thought my video was apparently dangerous and had it taken down. Within the next month, I had been banned from Twitter. And within two months, I was banned from Instagram as well. So a lot of people were in similar situations. They got censored. They knew all this was true. And they said, hey, everybody, look at this. The government is violating the First Amendment and your human rights. It is censoring the American people. Nothing they're saying is illegal. They're just expressing themselves about politics or about anything. And they're getting censored. But people said it was okay. The social media platforms were private companies and they could censor you if they wanted to. They're not working with the government. That was the claim, including by a great many members of the Uniparty right who still to this day call themselves conservatives while they were provably defending the government as it violated the First Amendment on a scale that makes Nazi book burning look like child's play. And while they did it, they pretended to be the defenders of American culture and conservative values. Well, here we are three years later, and these people don't really have anywhere to hide. Their prior positions look ridiculous, and of course, they were ridiculous at the time, but they were doing what they had to do. They didn't want to hear from us either. They didn't want to hear from Donald Trump. They sure didn't want to hear from his supporters. And even after the Twitter files, they just kept on pretending that everything was still normal. They pretend that the American people elected Joe Biden. Sure, the country would censor its own citizens and it would lie about a pandemic and it would lie about masks and lockdowns and vaccines and the insurrection in Ukraine and a million other things. You could just go back in history. They basically lied about everything, but they wouldn't. They definitely wouldn't lie about that election. We're still in normal times. The Internet, you know, it's a new thing. So sure, it looks like maybe the government censored people a little bit, but those people were spreading misinformation. And regardless, if we want to fix these problems, what we need to do is go out there and win some rigged elections and then empower a bunch of illegitimate politicians and beg them. In fact, grovel at their feet. Hey, politicians, will you please restore my human rights and First Amendment rights? And if they say no, I guess you're just going to have to win more rigged elections. We're conservatives. We have to follow the rules even if the rules were changed without anyone's permission. It's the Democrats causing all these problems, and you know how to deal with Democrats. We just need to go out there and win some rigged elections. And the way we're going to do that is by making sure that the vast majority of our voters don't have any say in the process. Now, if you're not a standard-issue uniparty right villager, then you may have at some point considered, hey, is what's happening on the TV what's actually happening out in the world, or are they getting a few things wrong? And if you realize that, hey, maybe the television sometimes gets a few things wrong, then you might think what's happening in reality may be different than what's happening on television. 
They say everything's normal. And all the quote unquote conservatives I've always listened to, they say everything's normal too, but things don't feel normal. And at that point, you might try to figure out what explains all that. And sooner or later, if you have smart friends instead of standard issue villagers of the uniparty right and the uniparty left, someone may have suggested at some point that we are in an information war and the things that we're being told and the places we are allowed to speak or the places we are censored, all of these are elements in a narrative battle, a contest for the collective mind so that we can build the consent for what must be done in order to remove this infiltration from the country and give the country back over to the people, as Donald Trump promised in his inaugural address in 2017. Now, perhaps all these uniparty right media figures and influencers and politicians are very savvy operators in the information war, but it's also possible they have absolutely no idea what's going on and it's at least worth considering both possibilities in every situation, because one thing we have definitely learned over the last few years is that people who are in positions of leadership within the regime and its uniparty aren't very smart. They don't believe an information war is happening. They think that's a conspiracy theory. In fact, they think the existence of a uniparty is a conspiracy theory as well, and they are content to simply tickle fight their controlled opposition on the uniparty left. And that has essentially been the state of play over the past few years. We are called conspiracy theorists while we are banned, while we are silenced, while we are shadow banned and censored in every imaginable way, while our accounts are suspended, while we are demonetized, while we are prevented from accessing features that everyone else can access. And they all get to pretend that there is no information war. We just won't stop whining. But then the CTIL files drop a few weeks back. And what we can see is that the other side is fully cognizant of the fact that we are in an information war. In fact, they are talking about leading the information war against us and coordinating that with intelligence agencies and the Department of Defense. And I want to call your attention to a passage we went over a few weeks ago Quoted here is a woman named Sarah Jane Turp, who is the leader of the censorship operation as described in the CTIL files. A study of the antecedents to these events leads us to the realization that there's something off kilter with our information landscape, wrote Turp and her co-authors. The usual useful idiots and fifth columnists, now augmented by automated bots, cyborgs, and human trolls, are busily engineering public opinion, stoking up outrage, sowing doubt, and chipping away at trust in our institutions. And now it's our brains that are being hacked. The MisinfoSec report, and that's what's referenced here, focused on information that changes beliefs through narratives and recommended a way to counter misinformation by attacking specific links in a kill chain or influence chain from the misinfo incident before it becomes a full-blown narrative. The report laments that governments and corporate media no longer have full control of information. For a long time, the ability to reach mass audiences belonged to the nation state. For example, in the USA, via broadcast licensing through ABC, CBS, and NBC. Now, however, 
control of informational instruments has been allowed to devolve to large technology companies who have been blissfully complacent and complicit in facilitating access to the public for information operators at a fraction of what it would have cost them by other means. So essentially, this report is lamenting the fact that because of social media, normal people are able to influence public narratives, which eventually help guide the beliefs of the collective mind, what we understand to be true as a society. The complaint here in no uncertain terms is that they have lost control. The government and corporate media no longer have control over the flow of information. This is something that we have talked about nonstop for years now. It was no mystery to us. But despite these communications finally being exposed, illustrating very clearly that the uniparty government in the United States was working on specific projects to censor the American people in order to shift public opinion because they had lost control of the narrative, the standard issue villagers continue to pretend that none of it is true. It's all a conspiracy theory. And we, of course, are conspiracy theorists. There is not an information war happening, and we should not analyze the things we hear in the context of the information war. We should just figure out what the TV is saying, what the newspapers are saying, and what people are saying on social media. And then we need to figure out how we feel about it and then tell everybody how we feel about it. And if enough people feel the way we do, and we all agree that we feel really, really mad and really, really sad, then we will say something must be done about this. Fire that university president. Get that creepy little dude off that beer can. These are the serious issues affecting us today. Ha <laughs> ha. And those people are honestly going to have a very hard time. I don't, I don't know what's going to come of them. I deal with these people on X, formerly Twitter, every day, and they don't seem to be improving. So I just say, hey, good luck, Kami. Go with that. I wish you well. I don't think things are going to turn out well for you, but I, I hope they do. I hope you get better. I mean, what else can you say? Looking at the events as communicated to us by the mainstream media and deciding how we feel about them or how they affect our team and our team affiliation, that is for stupid people. If we know we're in an information war, then we have to treat the narratives as elements of that war. The channels of information are the battleground and the information is weaponized. The goal is not to remember all the information, assuming it's true and deciding how to feel about it. The goal is to figure out what the information is there for. What do they want us to believe? And why is it always something that simply isn't true? Now, I was watching some of Sean Ryan's interview with former acting Secretary of Defense at the end of Donald Trump's first term, Christopher Miller. And this little clip is from part three. Miller is talking about irregular warfare. We have to retool for a, a different type of war that they are fighting, that we are refusing to accept. And we just want to go back to World War II. It's all we want. Like, just keep it clean. No, it's not clean anymore. It's everywhere. It's not clean anymore. It's everywhere. And of course, it's everywhere. It's an information war. And here he is 
talking about the level of data analysis that can be applied to information, including your personal information that you are giving away all day long through that little device in your hand. Is the NSA involved? I mean, are we doing anything about any of this stuff? I don't know. I mean, I don't know now. Your question, like, can we look at their communication pathways and how they're doing things? I went to a civil, I'll just tell you straight up this way. I don't have to like get rolled up by the FBI for violating some security oath or something that I signed and didn't realize I was talking about secret information, which this isn't. I went to a commercial entity that does the uh, scrapes the internet and then can do these link diagrams and they can see usage. They just look at the internet where everything's coming from and they totally it's not just one. I've seen several. It's, apparently, it's not that hard. And it was like, okay, this is where the rush. This is Russian troll farm one. Oh my gosh, we have a new Russian troll farm. I while I was there that day because it just pops off the off the screen at you, and then you can scrape out from that. You can see what messages and what mechanisms they're using. Okay, sixty four percent Twitter, Instagram, bleep 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 bleep, and then you can go in now with real, you know, with, with machine learning, get that crap translated. You can kind of get the sentiment analysis and all that. You can see what they're trying to do. We can do that. Your question is, are we doing anything back to them? Don't know. How many countries are involved in this? Can you say that? What's that? We know Russia's, we know China's. Uh, great question. I don't know. Is Iran involved? Oh yeah. 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 Throw Iran in there, throw North Korea, but they're not good at it. Yeah, I was gonna. I was thinking of some other countries, but yeah, those are the primary ones. What other countries? I was thinking of some countries that you wouldn't normally think of, and I'm not gonna tell you because I, it, Sean, sorry, I just don't need the FBI showing up at my house. I get it. So, information war. The conspiracy theorists say it. The side waging the information war against American citizens says it. They admit it. And that is the acting secretary of defense at the end of Donald Trump's first term, who also recognizes that we are in the midst of irregular warfare and, of course, information warfare. And so if we are engaged in information warfare and the public narrative is obviously part of information warfare, if not the biggest part, then all of our analysis has to recognize that fact and take that into account. If we fail to take that into account, then we end up with a surface level analysis about stories we can reasonably assume to be false, maybe in minor details or maybe completely and totally false, made up from the roots up just 100% fake news. Now, there are a lot of people out there who are not into my good friend John Harold's theory of devolution, and they don't believe that any kind of continuity of government program was enacted. Trump simply knew that the elections were stolen and stepped away somehow without conceding, while also having made major personnel changes and putting all sorts of new policies in place between the stolen election of 2020 and his supposed exit in January of 2021, he did all those things and then just walked away and left the country hanging in the balance under the legitimate control of Joe Biden. And I get it. 
The theory is frustrating. It is very frustrating to be told something else is going on in the background, especially if you're unable to see it. Someone can go through all of the reasons why you might be inclined to believe it, show you examples of things happening in the real world that seem to map on to that understanding of our current situation, and you might still just not believe it. Maybe you have doubt. It's not enough. You can't prove this sort of thing the way you want things proven. You're just not satisfied that this is the right answer, so you can't accept it. And you revert then to ignoring the information war entirely and focusing on events. And I'm not saying, by the way, that everyone who doesn't believe that a COG program or devolution or something similar to that is going on is not engaged in or cognizant of the information war. There are other people out there with other ideas about what's happening, and that's just fine. I'm not here to pretend that I know the right answer, and I'm not here to judge what other people might think, although if you think nothing's going on, then come on. I'm not going to be able to take that seriously, and at some point, no one's going to take that seriously. But if you're like us and you believe that something definitely is happening in the background and there are signs of that being true constantly, then you get in the habit of thinking what else everything might mean. What does this mean if there is actually something else playing in the background? When a new narrative event rises, it emerges from the world. We are told about it and we are given a meaning, the surface level interpretation. It will make enough sense for people to believe it as long as they don't actually try to pick away at the story and figure out if it's true or not. It will seem plausible enough. People will accept it. They will figure out how they feel about it and they will move on. But if you understand these elements as part of a broader information war, then it makes sense to analyze them as part of a broader information war. And if we think that something may be playing out in the background, then we can look at a narrative event as it emerges and try to think about what else might be going on there. And there are some really interesting stories from this week that I think highlight that. And so let's take a look at those. This is from today in the New York Post. Melania Trump makes rare appearance at National Archives as husband faces classified dock charges. Former First Lady Melania Trump delivered remarks Friday during a naturalization ceremony at the National Archives as her husband faces criminal charges for having withheld presidential documents from the agency. So Melania Trump, the First Lady, former First Lady, is at a naturalization ceremony. She is speaking before immigrants as they become new American citizens, as she herself once did. And she was invited to speak by the archivist at the National Archives and Records Administration. The fake first lady, of course, is still busy basking in the glow of her newly released Old Navy commercial slash Christmas celebration. So, of course, she couldn't attend the naturalization ceremony. Now, it is totally normal for first ladies to attend naturalization ceremonies. Michelle Obama spoke before naturalization ceremonies. Jill Biden apparently spoke at one herself in California last year. But it's a little odd that a former first lady is speaking at a naturalization ceremony at the National Archives and Records Administration 
While the National Archives and Records Administration is the very agency that claimed Donald Trump did not return his own personal property, his own presidential records to them in time and was still going back and forth with his attorneys. So therefore, the FBI needed to go raid Mar-a-Lago. That same organization that was so offended by President Trump not handing over his own personal property when they demanded it, the moment they demanded it, even though he didn't have to hand it over at all, that organization is inviting his wife to speak at a naturalization ceremony. Again, Donald Trump is extremely indicted. He is so indicted, and this was so damaging and dangerous. You know, these national security documents that he just wouldn't give back to NARA. All of that is such a big deal that they still go and invite his wife to speak at their event, welcoming new citizens to America. Hello, new immigrants. This woman is married to the man who wouldn't give us his national security documents, and he endangered the entire nation. And that's why he's very, very arrested. She's going to tell you how important it is to be a loyal and faithful American. In her remarks, Melania Trump said, For me, reaching the milestone marked the sunrise of certainty. Speaking, of course, about finally gaining her American citizenship. So it was over 16 months ago that... The FBI raided Mar-a-Lago. It's worth noting that five days before that Mar-a-Lago raid, a new national archivist was named by the fake president, Joe Biden, on August 3rd of 2022. She didn't actually assume that role officially until this year, but she was named archivist right before the so-called raid. Now, if you're a standard issue villager out there and you're only understanding of this Trump case, this indictment, the Mar-a-Lago raid, the national security documents, Jack Smith, all of it. If your only understanding of all that is what you have gotten from the television and newspapers and mainstream on social media, then something like this would be rather disconcerting. It doesn't really make sense. The National Archives, well, this is the group who was the target of so much disrespect by Donald Trump, they're trying to do a very important job, which is keep all of these documents secret so the American people can never see them ever, ever, ever. In fact, the National Archives, they own all the documents, even if presidents declassify them and take them as their own personal records. Nope, that's not good enough. The National Archives gets to keep them so that American citizens can never, ever, ever find out. These important documents need to be kept under lock and key, either at NARA or at a presidential library, but under no circumstances can they possibly be with the president at his home with the skiff and guarded by the Secret Service. That just won't stand. One would think if they were actually mad at Donald Trump and he had actually wronged them so grievously they would not be inviting his wife, the first lady, to speak at a naturalization ceremony. But I guess this new archivist that was named right before the Mar-a-Lago raid, she doesn't hold a grudge. This afternoon, we got some Rudy Giuliani news. This is from NBC. Rudy Giuliani hit with $148 million verdict for defaming two Georgia election workers. 
Rudy Giuliani should pay a pair of Georgia election workers he repeatedly and falsely accused of fraud $148 million in damages, a federal jury said Friday. The eight-person jury awarded Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Wandria Shea Moss, the sum after a four-day trial during which they testified that Giuliani's lies in support of former President Donald Trump's bogus stolen election claims subjected them to a torrent of racist and violent threats and turned their lives upside down. The amount awarded to Freeman and Moss was for three different kinds of damages, defamation, punitive, and emotional distress. The plaintiffs were awarded $20 million each for emotional distress and $75 million between them in punitive damages. Freeman was separately awarded just over $16 million in defamation damages, while Moss was awarded almost $17 million. Giuliani called the dollar amount absurd and told reporters he would appeal. And of course, he's going to appeal. You may remember that in addition to the video of the vote counting room at the State Farm Arena in Fulton County, Georgia, after the vote counting had been stopped for the night, there were also various videos on social media and posts on social media of Ruby Freeman admitting to what she was doing. And then there was another video, this put out last year by the Georgia Record, police body cam video of Ruby Freeman admitting to everything she had done and also saying that she wanted to tell her story to the nation. You can find that story at georgiarecord.com, Christmas Day of last year, 2022. The headline is Update Full Video Edition, Ruby Freeman Body Cam Admissions Revealed in the Georgia Ballot Scanning Scandal. But we might as well forget completely about the truth or falsity of any underlying event, because that's not what these court cases are about. And that's not what these decisions are about. This decision, as soon as it dropped, immediately sounds exactly like the Fox Dominion settlement from a few months back. Fox agreeing to give Dominion $787 million despite Dominion's own discovery documents showing that Dominion knew its machines could not possibly produce a reliable and accurate vote count. There would be absolutely no way for Fox to be found liable. That would obviously expose the Dominion problem, but it would also expose Fox for the fact that they have lied about and covered up election fraud now for well over three years. The absolutely preposterous number of $148 million also sounds a whole lot like the decision against Alex Jones, where he has to pay $900 zillion for saying some things that the Sandy Hook parents didn't like. A bunch of brain-dead communists on the internet are very, very excited about this. There was a coordinated effort this morning, even before a decision came out, for them to flood the channels on social media, claiming that Rudy never brought evidence of election fraud because there is no evidence of election fraud. And this decision means that Rudy was lying the whole time. And therefore, our elections aren't stolen. And Joe Biden actually did receive 81 million real lawful American votes. Rudy Giuliani being held liable by this court for defamation while knowing that the case is going to go to an appeals process still means that there was no election fraud. Now that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, but these people don't understand that or perhaps they do. 
And perhaps they're just part of their own little info op trying to demoralize MAGA and sow this false narrative, exploiting the decision in the Rudy trial. Here are Rudy's comments after the decision. Of course, there's very little I can say right now. I have to analyze this. Obviously, possibly we'll move for a new trial. Certainly we'll appeal. The absurdity of the number merely underscores the absurdity of the entire proceeding where I've not been allowed to offer one single piece of evidence in defense, of which I have a lot. So I am quite confident when this case gets before a fair tribunal, it'll be reversed so quickly it'll make your head spin. And the absurd number that just came in will help that, actually. So Rudy says that once this is heard on appeal in front of a fair tribunal, It'll be reversed so quickly it'll make your head spin. But he also notes that he was not allowed to present any evidence in his own defense, though he says he has a lot. Why wouldn't he be able to present evidence? Well, if you analyze all of these stories that were told on that very surface level, you don't look for an explanation. You just assume there's no evidence there. That's why he didn't show it. It's not that he was prevented from showing evidence. It's that He doesn't have any evidence. And of course, the idea that there is no evidence in Rudy's defense, well, that's preposterous. We know that there is. Ruby Freeman is on camera admitting to all of these things. And then there is the video from State Farm Arena. But it's possible that Rudy wasn't able to show evidence in his trial because it may just be the case that that evidence is tied up in other proceedings, which is something we've seen quite a lot over the last few years. Now, I imagine that there is no one in my audience who sees these reports, hears these reports, this great number. Rudy Giuliani now owes $148 million to these two women who were on camera stealing the election and gets all bent out of shape. You can't get bent out of shape about this stuff. You put it in context. We're in a very weird period right now. A lot of weird things are happening. You can't view them at the surface level. Rudy Giuliani is right there saying that he has plenty of evidence. He wasn't allowed to show any of it. He will be allowed to show it on appeal. He doesn't sound worried at all. He knows what he has. There is absolutely nothing about this decision that has any bearing on that underlying evidence and the underlying truth. There's absolutely no way in the world Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. Now, we've been talking quite a bit over the past few months throughout the period when we had no Speaker of the House, and a few times since about what they call must-pass legislation that would be brought up before Congress takes recess for the holidays. And that is today, by the way, all of your representatives are on vacation for the next three weeks. But among that must-pass legislation was the National Defense Authorization Act, And after a lot of arguing and bickering and controversy, the uniparty right and the uniparty left were able to come together and pass the NDAA. This is Reuters yesterday. Congress passes $886 billion defense policy bill Biden to sign into law. More than two thirds of the U.S. House of Representatives voted in favor of a defense policy bill on Thursday that includes a record $886 billion in annual military spending and authorizes policies such as aid for Ukraine and pushback against China in the Indo-Pacific. 
the House backed the NDAA by 310 to 118 with strong support from Republicans and Democrats. It was more than the two-thirds majority required to pass the measure and send it to the White House for President Joe Biden to sign into law. Separate from the appropriation bills that set government spending levels, the NDAA authorizes everything from pay raises for troops, this year's will be 5.2%, to purchases of ships, ammunition, and aircraft. Because it is one of the few major pieces of legislation that becomes law every year, members of Congress use it as a vehicle for a wide range of initiatives. It is also closely watched by major defense companies such as Lockheed Martin, RTX Corp., and other firms that receive Department of Defense contracts. Isn't that nice to know? Your representatives understand that this piece of legislation has to pass every year, so they go ahead and they put their own initiatives into it so that those pass as well. The vote for this year's bill, which is nearly 3,100 pages long and authorizes a record $886 billion, up 3% from last year, meant that Congress has passed an NDAA for 63 straight years. What a record! The final version of the NDAA left out provisions addressing divisive social issues, such as access to abortion and treatment of transgender service members that had been included in the version passed by the Republican majority house over the objection of Democrats threatening to derail the legislation. The Democrat controlled Senate also backed the NDAA with a strong quote unquote bipartisan majority 87 to 13 on Wednesday. The fiscal year 2024 NDAA also includes a four-month extension of a disputed domestic surveillance authority, giving lawmakers more time to either reform or keep the program known as Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That provision faced objections in both the Senate and House, but not enough to derail the bill. The Senate defeated an attempt to remove the FISA extension from the NDAA on Wednesday before voting to pass the defense measure. CNN put out an article talking about what's in the NDAA. They note warrantless surveillance of foreign nationals. The bill includes a short-term extension of a controversial law that permits warrantless surveillance of foreign nationals extending authority for the program through April 19th. And the idea is that this is going to be extended through April of 2025, ultimately. The law, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, enables the U.S. government to obtain intelligence by collecting communications records of non-Americans overseas who are using U.S.-based communication services. Supporters argue Section 702 is a critical tool for safeguarding national security, but it has come under scrutiny from some lawmakers over alleged misuse. And there has been rampant misuse and abuse of the FISA process, and that was highlighted throughout all of the Russiagate hoax and all of the fallout, everything for the last eight years that even touches the Russiagate issue invariably runs into the FISA problems. This is what allows the government to spy on virtually anyone. If you are connected within three degrees of someone, they decide they can monitor on the basis of interactions with foreign agents. Naturally, the uniparty right has to say that they are doing something about wokeness. The package would prohibit funding for the teaching, training, or promotion of critical race theory in the military, including at service academies and Department of Defense schools, according to the House summary. 
and it would prohibit the display of any unapproved flags, such as the LGBTQ pride flag at military installations. It would also put in place a hiring freeze on diversity, equity, and inclusion positions until the U.S. Government Accountability Office completes an investigation of the Pentagon's DEI programs. There is also a Parents' Bill of Rights for Department of Defense Schools, and they make sure that no money will be spent on drag shows. That's where we are now. That needs to be put into law. Hey, military, you guys can't spend any more money on drag queens. I'm sure Vladimir Putin is shaking in his boots. They have also agreed to invite back soldiers who were forced out of the military after refusing to take the COVID shot. Now, in addition, Senator Marco Rubio had some of his own provisions added to this NDAA, and his office released a statement at Rubio's Senate.gov site. There are a few interesting provisions here that haven't made national news, and then we will get to the one that has. But a couple of bullet points from Rubio's press release, International Port Security Enforcement Act, first introduced in 2023. This legislation ensures that ports controlled by state sponsors of terrorism and terrorist organizations are automatically deemed as not having effective anti-terrorism measures and sanctioned through the International Port Security Program. The bill also guarantees that the U.S. Coast Guard does not share our nation's port security protocols with terrorists or terrorist sponsors. And you would have to think that there is a substantial dig there. Another bullet point, non-recognition of Russian annexation of Ukrainian Territory Act, first introduced in 2022. This provision is retained from the fiscal year 23 NDAA and prohibits any federal department or agency from taking any action or extending any assistance that implies recognition of Russian claims of sovereignty over any portion of the internationally recognized territory of Ukraine. So they are affirming for whatever reason that despite Crimea not effectively being part of Ukraine for eight or nine years now, Crimea is still part of Ukraine. Another bullet point, Enhancing Spaceport Operations Act. First introduced in 2023, this legislation supports the U.S. Space Force and commercial space launch providers, ensuring that the U.S. remains competitive with the threats from China and Russia. Commercial space launch providers. Who does that sound like? That sounds like SpaceX and Elon Musk. But here's the big one, the interesting one, the one that has drawn all the headlines. This is the Hill from yesterday in the afternoon. Congress approves bill barring any president from unilaterally withdrawing from NATO. Congress has approved legislation that would prevent any president from withdrawing the United States from NATO without approval from the Senate or an act of Congress. The measure spearheaded by Senators Tim Kaine and Marco Rubio was included in the National Defense Authorization Act, which passed out of the House on Thursday and is expected to be signed by the illegitimate president. Now, it is not noted in this article, but it is noted on Rubio's press release. This was first introduced in 2021. So this is not just something they're thinking about right now. All the coverage says this is about Donald Trump and preventing Donald Trump from withdrawing unilaterally from the NATO treaty 
when he becomes once again publicly recognized as president. But let's continue with the article from The Hill. The provision underscores Congress's commitment to the NATO alliance that was a target of former President Trump's ire during his term in office. The alliance has taken on revitalized importance under Biden, especially since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Now, that entire paragraph is ridiculous, and they are not doing what they so often like to call providing context. What Donald Trump was doing was trying to return the NATO treaty to its original purpose, which was to create an alliance, a defense alliance. And as Steve Bannon often says, what we had, what we ended up with was a U.S. protectorate. All of these countries in Europe that were part of that NATO alliance would be protected by the United States and the United States was funding all of it. So it was our indentured servitude, the hard work, the labor of the American people, which was providing defense for all of Europe. All those benefits we hear about in the European countries, we're essentially paying for those. It's like we're Europe's slave colony. Donald Trump actually required the countries of Europe to live up to their responsibilities and funding commitments for NATO. And ultimately, that strengthened the NATO alliance, though they continue to say that he was weakening it. Apparently, asking other people to live up to their commitments is somehow seen as unfair. Europe apparently gets to do whatever it wants. The article in The Hill says Biden has invested deeply in the NATO alliance during his term committing more troops and military resources to Europe as a show of force against Putin's war. He has also overseen the expansion of the alliance with the inclusion of Finland and ongoing efforts to secure Sweden's full accession. Joe Biden has virtually nothing to do with that. This is so silly. They are just trying to frame it as Joe Biden is the very pro-NATO guy. He's the hero. Donald Trump, of course, is the villain, the anti-NATO guy, even though Trump actually made NATO stronger and Joe Biden is making it so that NATO will eventually be dissolved. And you might say, well, Donald Trump is really responsible for setting us out on this course. And he's the one with the real influence on this situation. And hey, maybe that's true. But Joe Biden doesn't seem to want to admit it. So this is being covered as a preemptive move to prevent Donald Trump from exiting the NATO treaty when he becomes publicly recognized as president once again. And of course, he's definitely not president right now, so they couldn't be worried about him pulling out of NATO now. And Joe Biden is the strengthener of NATO, so they couldn't be worried about Joe Biden pulling out of NATO. And of course, Joe Biden is a tool of the regime. Gavin Newsom obviously is a tool of the regime. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, tool, tool. And you can't imagine even in outlandish scenarios, someone like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or Marianne Williamson or Cornell West pulling out of NATO. I mean, right? NATO's their thing. And by the way, I am absolutely certain it is possible that Cornell West, Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. may have said things that would indicate they don't want to be part of NATO. There are certainly liberals who do not want to be any part of NATO. I'm just saying they're not going to pull out of it. 
Not that any of them will ever be president. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., of course, is the only one who even has any chance whatsoever. Are they setting this up for Joe Biden? Is this strictly a narrative thing? Could anyone possibly imagine a scenario where Donald Trump wanted to pull out of NATO and would be stopped by some provision in a National Defense Authorization Act? We're talking about a president's ability to act in regards to a national defense treaty. Consider what this would mean in reality. And I think this is probably why it's there insofar as they're concerned with Trump at all by doing this. But the scenario is this. Trump is president. Putin just continues his brutal invasion, just one country to the next. And finally, he wages a brutal invasion against a NATO country. And Donald Trump says, OK, I hear you guys. I know you're saying Article five of NATO is now in effect and I have to send American troops to fight Russia maybe forever. But here's the thing. I'm not going to do it. And in fact, I'm going to go ahead and pull out of NATO and just void that treaty. The idea here would be that Trump can't get out of it and therefore has to do what the treaty requires. And so now Donald Trump, as the commander in chief and the duly elected president with a mandate to not engage the country in ridiculous foreign wars, would just have to go to war by default based on this international treaty signed decades and decades ago that other countries don't live up to, but we must. What we basically have is the illegitimate Congress and the illegitimate Senate deciding to create a situation where the United States would have to go to war by default, even over the objections of the commander in chief and the people of the nation. Essentially, we have to be the police force of the global regime, whether we want to or not. Now, as I said, we are in a very strange situation and you have to look at things in multiple ways. What if something else is going on here? What if they are setting this up for a president who's not Donald Trump? Are we going to see Joe Biden, the fake president, try to get out of NATO? I doubt it. But maybe it's possible in the future that the country wants to get out of the NATO treaty to such a degree that Donald Trump now won't even have to touch it. He'll just say, well, hey, you know, the Congress and the Senate, they have to do it. Why aren't they doing it? And we would then have yet another opportunity to see who's actually on the team. I feel like that sifting process will continue maybe forever. Maybe it needs to continue forever. Maybe we should actually be laser focused on who is continually ready and willing to put the needs of the global regime above the needs of the American people. But let's keep going. This is the New York Times yesterday. Former FBI spy hunter sentenced to four years in prison. A federal judge in Manhattan sentenced a former top FBI agent to more than four years in prison on Thursday for conspiring to launder money and violate U.S. sanctions intended to punish a Russian oligarch with ties to Vladimir Putin. The agent, Charles McGonigal, has served as chief of counterintelligence for the Federal Bureau of Investigation in New York, a crucial and sensitive position inside the American intelligence community before retiring in 2018. 
In January of this year, however, Mr. McGonagall's reputation as a spy hunter was upended when he was arrested by federal agents and two indictments were unsealed in New York and Washington, D.C., charging him with taking money from some of the very same types of people whom he had been assigned to monitor, according to prosecutors. Doesn't that make it sound like he's actually a, uh, what's the word, a spy and not a spy hunter? And of course, they have to frame it as though he was helping Vladimir Putin this whole time, a Russian oligarch with ties to Vladimir Putin. That is every Russian oligarch. It is so silly that our paper of record thinks everyone is retarded. In New York, Mr. McGonagall, 55, admitted this summer to working on behalf of Oleg Deripaska, a Russian aluminum magnate, in violation of sanctions imposed on him in 2018. They note, by the way, that McGonagall is one of the highest ranking FBI officials to ever be convicted of a crime. On Thursday, Mr. McGonagall, an expert in Russian counterintelligence who seemingly lived a commonplace suburban life in Maryland, was confronted with a looming new reality and living arrangement, a federal prison, the result of a 50-month term handed down by Judge Jennifer Reardon of Federal District Court. Mr. McGonagall was also fined $40,000. According to sentencing documents submitted by Damian Williams, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Mr. McGonagall had been planning on exploiting his position for monetary gain even before he stepped down from the FBI. That plan came to fruition in 2021 when Mr. McGonagall agreed to investigate a competitor of Mr. Deripaska, Vladimir Potanin, another Russian oligarch, in exchange for hidden payments. Those illicit services were arranged through a representative of Mr. Deripaska, Yevgeny Fokin. Mr. McGonagall's relationship with Mr. Fokin included favors like pursuing an internship for Mr. Fokin's daughter at the New York Police Department, where she received VIP treatment, according to Mr. Williams. Mr. McGonagall's work on the oligarch's behalf, obscured by use of shell companies and subcontractors, involved seeking information about Mr. Potanin's business. The ultimate goal, prosecutors said, was to cause sanctions to be placed on Mr. Potanin, potentially leveling the playing field with Mr. Deripaska. But the plot unraveled within months after the FBI seized Mr. McGonagall's cell phone and that of another associate, Sergei Shestakov. So one of the highest ranking officials at the FBI in FBI counterintelligence was going to take a payment from a Russian oligarch and then get sanctions placed on one of that Russian oligarch's competitors. And that is unbelievably corrupt. Now let's go to Marco Polo's report on the Biden laptop. You can find that at hereshunter.com or bidenreport.com. This is page 129 of the report. One of the feds who was likely involved in the FISA surveillance of Ho, and that is Patrick Ho, the man Hunter Biden called the spy chief of China. So one of the feds who was likely involved in the FISA surveillance of Patrick Ho was Charlie McGonigal, the then special agent in charge 
for counterintelligence at the New York field office. McGonagall's wife was on the Biden laptop as the couple's daughter and one of Hunter's daughters played lacrosse together. McGonagall is the subject of a federal grand jury probe. That's this case for possible FARA violations and other dealings with Russian oligarchs. Based on an email from Kim determining if McGonagall was one of the agents Hunter quote unquote spoke with on Ho's behalf ought to be the focus of a congressional subpoena. And that is the great Garrett Ziegler writing. And here is footnote 625 from this page. It cites a business insider article from September 2022. Quote, while it wouldn't necessarily have been illegal for McGonagall to work on behalf of Deripaska, failing to disclose activities covered by the Foreign Agents Registration Act, such as lobbying and public relations, is punishable by a $250,000 fine and up to five years in prison. You are seeing an erosion in any rule of law as it relates to the FSB, McGonagall said. It would be akin to having in the United States the FBI as a rogue element operating at the behest of the highest bidder. McGonagall's profile on LinkedIn says he is the senior vice president of global security and life safety at Brookfield Properties, a multi-billion dollar real estate company in New York. But that information apparently is inaccurate. Charlie McGonagall is no longer with Brookfield. Andrew Brent, Brookfield's head of communications, told Insider. McGonagall left the company, he added, in early January, just as witnesses were scheduled to appear before the grand jury. So McGonagall's got himself fairly deep in all of this and has a daughter who plays lacrosse with Hunter's daughter. Now, does the New York Times article mention Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or Patrick Ho at any point? No, of course they don't. They are actively protecting McGonagall in this article. The framing of this piece is this spy hunter, a really, really great guy, just one of the FBI's greatest. He was about to put a cap on one of the greatest careers you could ever imagine in the FBI, and he got a little greedy and he made one bad decision, and now he has to go to jail for four years. That's how the New York Times is covering it. And you might wonder why. And the answer is... Charles McGonagall is sentenced as part of a plea deal, and people believe that the plea deal was offered because McGonagall is going to roll over on much bigger figures. That is, much bigger figures than someone who is a top counterintelligence agent at the FBI. It's strange that the New York Times doesn't mention any of that. And finally, the big juicy story of the day is from CNN. There are five different writers in the byline for this article. One of them is Natasha Bertrand, who is a widely known intelligence asset and the woman who wrote the October 19th, 2020 article in Politico with the headline Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo. Dozens of former Intel officials say so she is the person responsible for the whole 51 former intelligence officials story. She is still allowed to be a mainstream media reporter with the most trusted name in news. This is CNN. Here's the headline. The mystery of the missing binder. How a collection of raw Russian intelligence disappeared under Trump. 
And we talked about this a bit this morning on Badlands Daily. This article kind of feels like a game of Clue, and they even have little graphics so you can see who did the crime and where and when and with whom. It's a good time. And what a juicy, juicy story. A binder containing highly classified information related to Russian election interference went missing at the end of Donald Trump's presidency, raising alarms among intelligence officials that some of the most closely guarded national security secrets from the U.S., and its allies could be exposed. Sources familiar with the matter told CNN sources familiar with the matter. They can't tell you who they can't tell you what position they hold. All they can tell you is that it is a person who has heard of these things before. So really anyone who is connected to politics in any way, or anyone who even thinks about politics every now and then in any way, that person you might be thinking of right now, that person might be CNN's source. Its disappearance, this being the binder, which has not been previously reported, was so concerning that intelligence officials briefed Senate Intelligence Committee leaders last year about the missing materials and the government's efforts to retrieve them, the sources said. In the two plus years since Trump left office, the missing intelligence does not appear to have been found. The binder contained Raw intelligence, the U.S. and its NATO allies collected on Russians and Russian agents, including sources and methods that informed the U.S. government's assessment that Russian President Vladimir Putin sought to help Trump win the 2016 election, sources tell CNN. The intelligence was so sensitive that lawmakers and congressional aides with top secret security clearances were able to review the material only at CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia where their work scrutinizing it was itself kept in a locked safe. The binder was last seen at the White House during Trump's final days in office. The former president had ordered it brought there so he could declassify a host of documents related to the FBI's Russia investigation. Under the care of then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, the binder was scoured by Republican aides working to redact the most sensitive information so it could be declassified and released publicly. The Russian intelligence was just a small part of the collection of documents in the binder, described as being 10 inches thick and containing reams of information about the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation into the 2016 campaign and Russia. But the raw intelligence on Russia was among its most sensitive classified materials and top Trump administration officials repeatedly tried to block the former president from releasing the documents. The day before leaving office, Trump issued an order declassifying most of the binders contents, setting off a flurry of activity in the final 48 hours of his presidency. Multiple copies of the redacted binder were created inside the White House with plans to distribute them across Washington to Republicans in Congress and right-wing journalists, and they go on to name John Solomon. They say that the redacted versions of what was in this binder were distributed, and then Pat Cipollone, the White House attorney, demanded that all of them be retrieved and brought back for further redactions. We know the issues with Mark Meadows trying to get all of this declassified information put out. And we know about the DOJ trying to claw all of that back so that it could put its own further redactions on. And none of that declassified info has yet seen the light of day. 
because all of this happened right before Trump, quote unquote, left office. And now it has just disappeared to wherever all of the rest of the evidence over the last four or five years has disappeared to. And truthfully, probably a lot longer. I mean, they usually just send it to the National Archives where it is kept under lock and key so that the American public can absolutely never, ever, ever find out what its unelected presidents and unelected government are actually doing. You're not allowed to know. The government is supposed to be of, by, and for the people, but <laughs> come on. I mean, nobody believes that. We were already sold back to the Prussians. It's all their information. We can't know. And if you are a standard issue villager, this is the point at which you say, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. I'm sure that there are plenty of really good reasons for why they have kept that declassified information under wraps and why we keep hearing about how the government doesn't have access to evidence. And we keep seeing people like Christopher Wray go in front of Congress and say, I don't know about things they should certainly know about. And they fail or refuse to testify about things they certainly know about. They seem to be avoiding congressional oversight. It's like they don't even believe the Congress is a legitimate body. And it totally, it totally, it totally, uh, I mean, at least it, it, it might be. I mean, I, okay. Yeah, we, we might be wrong. Yes. Maybe the Congress is actually legitimate. Now, of course it would be virtually impossible to prove that. And knowing what we know about elections, there's absolutely no reason to believe it, but it might be legitimate, like by accident or something. Now, let's back up for just a second in this CNN article. The raw intelligence on Russia was among its most sensitive classified materials and top Trump administration officials repeatedly tried to block the former president from releasing the documents. Isn't that absolutely bananas? And nobody even bats an eye at this because we are so conditioned to hearing the media tell us that top administration officials or various elements of the administrative state, the deep state, are trying to thwart Trump, that we are just used to it. But that is an extraordinary claim. Top Trump administration officials are trying to thwart the duly elected president in his plenary authority to declassify information and make it available to the American public. That is literally members of our government deciding to subvert and usurp the president's authority when it comes to information that the media is telling us affects our national security and the way we understand our elections in this country and our fourth estate, these journalists who are supposed to hold the people in power to account, they are siding with the people usurping the power of the duly elected president. But it's not a coup. They're not the state propaganda media of a global regime. All of those are conspiracy theories. You just look at this at a surface level. You know that you, as a standard issue villager, are much, much smarter than Donald Trump, the real estate mogul and billionaire, the television star and president. You, Jessica, with your college degree and your job as an executive assistant at the PR firm, you are smarter than him and you know more. That's how you know it's a good thing that his authority was usurped. You know that everything Cassidy Hutchinson says about Mark Meadows and Donald Trump is true. 
Trump really did try to wrestle the Secret Service because they wouldn't take him down to the insurrection so he could participate. And Mark Meadows, he stole that binder and he took it home to his home safe. He's been mishandling classified documents. And these documents are really, really, really important. The real president, Joe Biden, needs them and he can't get them. After three years, the DOJ, they stopped those declassified documents from coming out, but they just can't find this binder. And Joe Biden, the very powerful, real president of the United States of America, he can't find the binder either. And none of the news media knows where the binder is. No one has this information. The National Archives, they're trying to get Donald Trump's national security information, that classified information that he stole, that he was holding in his bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. They can't get that national security information even after the FBI raid. And there's still this binder out there and we don't know what's in there. And that's what makes it even scarier. Donald Trump knows things that we don't know, which is crazy because we're so much smarter than he is. And there's absolutely no way that anything's going on in the background. Anybody who talks about that stuff is a conspiracy theorist. But for real, where is all this information? Like, we really, really need this information. Trump's people have it or had it. I mean, we know they have it or had it because we can't get it. And we're the ones in power. So Trump is just like hiding it and stealing it, even with the Secret Service there, even after FBI raids of his home. I mean, they went through Melania's drawers. What if he flushed the contents of this binder down the toilets at Mar-a-Lago, just like Maggie Haberman said? Where is all of this evidence that we know exists, but no one can find? It's like something else must be happening in the background. And let's conclude here. This is the quote unquote, security expert, Miles Taylor, who was a government official serving in the George W. Bush administration and in the Trump administration in the Department of Homeland Security. In 2018, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times anonymously titled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration, basically taking credit for the subversion of the duly elected president, from within the administration. Here he is on MSNBC with none other than the former fake press secretary of the fake president, Jen Psaki. Liz Cheney's been talking about that I am also obsessed with is kind of what damage he could do within government without even necessarily breaking the law, like how he could use the levers of government to bend to his will. You've worked in government. What scares you the most? Well, the possibilities are almost limitless. And I spent nearly two years asking that question to people. And, and I wrote it in this book, Blowback, but to try to paint that picture, to try to understand what he would actually do by talking to all of my former colleagues at different departments and agencies under Trump and asking them that question, what will happen in a second term? The biggest concerns for me are on the national security side. I think Americans still don't understand the full extent of the president's powers and things Donald Trump could do bubble wrapped in legalese that would be damaging to the republic. And one of those that I've noted is there's something in the White House 
called the Doomsday Book. And for the first time, DHS gave authorization for me to mention this publicly. Uh, and the fact that there are concerns that that book, which is supposed to be used to protect the country in instances of armed foreign invasion or rebellion, it's the president's most extraordinary powers, could be picked up by Trump and used for domestic political purposes. He could invoke powers we've never heard a president of the United States invoke, potentially to shut down companies or turn off the Internet or deploy the U.S. military on U.S. soil. Uh, we don't know because, you know, the things that are in there, the emergency powers of the president aren't widely known to the American people. So that's a big worry for people like me and others about what he could do. But that weaponization of the government could extend across the interagency to places where we haven't seen it before. The Department of Education, the Department of Veterans Affairs, ways to wield that power and those budgets to help his allies and to hurt his enemies. And to be clear, those aren't just elites. To Donald Trump, his enemies include people who live in blue states. I remember mm -hmm. him not wanting to deliver emergency aid to blue states because yeah. he didn't like them, because they didn't like him. Wow. I mean, Miles, the doomsday book, I think it's safe to say we don't want in Donald Trump's hand. Donald Trump and the Doomsday Book. Sounds like the next Harry Potter. But that, my friends, is pure unbridled panic. They don't know exactly what Donald Trump is going to do. They don't know exactly what sort of powers Donald Trump has. They just know they're all in for a real hard time. So, as I said, this may well be the last show, the last episode of Be Reasonable until 2024. And so I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas and enjoy that with your family and your friends or enjoy it by yourself. I've spent some Christmases alone. Sometimes the quiet is just wonderful. And we will all be looking forward to a big 2024. I will be back in 2024 at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!